as uh, Cody said, and I've met most of you, my name is Jacob Smith, and, and on behalf of, of my family, my lovely wife, Amy, and uh, our sweet little girl, Evelyn, uh, I just want to say thank you from the bottom of our hearts for the kindness you have shown us this weekend. And uh, just through simple conversations, opening up your homes, uh, eating together, um, your hospitality has truly been a blessing to our family. It's been a sweet reminder to me of just how precious the inheritance we have together as the saints in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, And so this morning, my joy is full and I look forward to continuing to worship with you over, over this text in First Peter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses, uh, verses 3 through 9. So uh, would you turn with me there? And, and as you're, you're turning there, I want you to consider the words of David in Psalm 27. There he says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And and a few verses later, he says, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. This this, uh, passage has been on my heart really for about the last year, and it's because it expresses such a singular desire and focus to see God in his beauty, to have our joy full, and have praise ring out to God. This is what we were created for. We were created to behold God's glory, to enjoy him, and to be worshipers of him. So you see, our praise and our joy go hand in hand. They mark the Christian life. Yet often, when we step back and look at our lives, we don't see the mark of praise or the mark of joy, or, or at least we see it less than we should. And that's because life has a way of bombarding us with trials, tribulations, circumstance, that, that clouds our vision and obscures our sight to the beauty of God and and our, our praise begins to falter and our joy wanes. But God in his kindness holds out gospel promises for us to look at and be reminded of his beauty. What is the root of our praise and our joy? It's in these gospel promises. And this is really the uh, purpose of the book of First Peter. Uh, First Peter refers, uh, uh, Peter refers to Christians that he's writing to as exiles and sojourners. And this highlights the reality that this world is not our home. That we are longing and looking for a heavenly city. And, and when we look there, we are encouraged to rejoice now and to praise God now. And so we read Passages such as this in 1 Peter 1.13, Therefore, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter 5.12, we read, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. 
So the message of First Peter could really be something like this. Set your hope on God's gospel. Set your hope on God's gospel and his gospel promises and stand firm in them, even amidst the trials of this current present life. And, and this is the context and message of our passage, really. Our passage reveals to us that praise to God and joy to God's people come through gospel promises. So look with me now at, at 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 9, and follow along as I read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now... For a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So uh, we will consider this, this passage in two parts. We will first look at verses 3 through 5, praise to God for gospel promises. And then we will consider verses 6 through 9, joy to God's people through gospel promises. And, and the hope and aim of this sermon is that by gazing at these gospel promises, we see God in his beauty once again, and our joy is reignited and full, and our praise rings out to God. So look with me at, uh, at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Immediately, we are swept up into an exclamation of praise from Peter. And why is he praising God? Well, he praises God as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So already we're beginning to see gospel themes start to break out of our passage. For God so loved the world that he sent his only Son. And the rest of verses 3 through 5 are going to unpack the reasons for Peter's praise. And, and what we're going to see in our passage are particular future gospel promises that give us reason to praise God now. Specifically, we're going to see the promise of gospel hope. We're going to see the promise of a gospel inheritance. And we're going to see the promise of gospel security. And finally, we're going to see the promise of gospel salvation. And now, think, don't think of these promises as separate individual promises. Really, they're interrelated, connected promises that nest together until they culminate in that fourth promise, our gospel salvation. But before we consider these future gospel promises, the first reason we see for our praise is because of what God has already done for us in the gospel, namely gospel rebirth. Look with me in verse 3. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. First, notice that our gospel rebirth is completely contingent upon God. We do nothing to bring ourselves to life, for you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, and God made you alive with Christ. And, and to be reborn is to be a recipient of God's mercy. We were enemies of God, and he redeemed us through the cross of Jesus and made us his own. Now this, this language of being born again should remind us of Jesus' words in John 3, shouldn't it? There he speaks to Nicodemus and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Being born of water and the Spirit reminds us of what we, a passage we heard this morning, right? Ezekiel 36. And that's what our passage, that's what, uh, gospel rebirth has in mind here. In Ezekiel 36, we read, I will sprinkle clean water on you. God's declaring this Old Testament promise to his people, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will put my spirit within you. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. So to be a recipient of God's mercy, to be reborn by God, is to be redeemed by God. And, and Peter says much the same thing in 1 Peter 2.10. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. To be reborn is to be made God's people, to be redeemed through the cross of Jesus Christ. And, and, and we praise God for our gospel rebirth. But notice, our gospel rebirth has a particular orientation, doesn't it? it it's, it's headed somewhere. Namely, it's headed towards future gospel promises. And, and the first gospel promise we see our rebirth headed towards is the promise of gospel hope. We see in verse 3, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Well, what, what is our living hope? What, is it, what does this mean? Well, I think the, the phrase, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, informs how we are to understand this living hope. You see, Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. Death is the last enemy to be destroyed. And here we find really one of the first trials of our exile here. We are all still under the curse of Adam. Everyone in this room, no matter who we are, will experience directly and indirectly the pain of this cursed death. And, and for some of you, it may be fresh this morning. But know this, the promise of your gospel hope 
is that though in Adam all die, in Christ all shall be made alive. For as by one man death came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead, Jesus Christ. This is your gospel hope. This is your living hope. You will be resurrected from the dead. And, and notice our, our gospel rebirth is also headed towards a second gospel promise, and that is our gospel inheritance. Continue with me in verse 4. We have been reborn to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So uh, at this word, inheritance, Old Testament alarm bells should be going off in our head, right? We've heard this word before. When God redeemed his people out of Egypt, he brought them into the land of their inheritance. And this land was a kingdom. One theologian describes the kingdom of God in this way. He says, it is God's people in God's place under God's rule. We too inherit a kingdom. In fact, this Old Testament inheritance that we see and know was meant to be a pointer to and an anticipation of the gospel promise of inheritance that we are going to receive. Matthew twenty-five thirty-four. Jesus, in speaking of the last time, says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And where is this inheritance? It's kept in heaven. Unlike the inheritance of Israel in the Old Testament, which was perishing, which was destroyed by the sins of the people, it was defiled and faded away. Your promised gospel inheritance never perishes. It is imperishable. It is eternal. Your promised gospel inheritance is un, cannot be defiled. There is no sin in heaven, and it will never fade, and it will never lose its luster, and it will never lose its beauty. It is kept in heaven for you. Perhaps the most beautiful picture we see of this gospel promise coming to bear on us is in Revelation 21, 1 through 4. There we read, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and he will be with them as their God. Your gospel inheritance is God himself. You will inherit God. So right now we might start feeling the praise well up within us. We want to praise God for these future gospel promises. But then there's that little voice whispering in our ear that says, you can't make it there. You'll never make it. Right, can you be sure that this will be your future? 
Well, our passage answers that as well, because the third promise we see in our passage is the promise of gospel security. Continue with me in verse 5. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So God not only causes your gospel rebirth, but God also keeps you. He he rebirths you to gospel promises, and he keeps you for gospel promises. We've seen this in Scripture. John 10, 27 through 30, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them Out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Perhaps 1 Thessalonians 5 through 23 through 24 is familiar. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless. At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. The God who causes you to be reborn to gospel promises is the same God who causes, who keeps you for these future gospel promises. And notice, we are not passive in this, but we are active in our faith. It is through our faith that God's power guards us. We exercise our faith in holiness and good works. The very faith that God gifted to us, we work with his power to work it out. Philippians 2, 12 through 13, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Through your faith in Jesus Christ, God's power guards you. And what is it keeping you for? Well, it's keeping you for a promise, gospel salvation. Our fourth future promise, verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The promise of our future gospel hope, our future gospel inheritance, and and the promise of gospel security all culminate in this promise, your gospel salvation. And oftentimes we think of salvation in terms of what God has done for us. He has caused us to be reborn. But here our passage is holding out salvation as something God will do for us. You have been saved by grace. You are being kept and saved by grace. And you will be saved. When Christ returns in the last time to judge the living and the dead, the promise of the gospel is this. You will be saved. So we see these promises, and our response is praise to God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and simultaneously, our joy is full. And this brings us to the second half of our passage, verses 6 through 9. Joy to God's people through gospel promises, even amidst trials, and suffering. So we read verse 6. 
In this you rejoice. In what? What is it that ignites our joy? Well, it's these gospel promises that our scripture just laid out for us. The same gospel promises that our reason for our praise are the same gospel promises that fill us with joy. But notice that right now, in the time of our exile, our praise and our joy mingles with trials and suffering. Continuing in verse 6, we rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now here, uh, Peter is most likely, his, his, his audience is most likely experiencing grievous trials of persecution and, and discrimination for their faith. And, and our passage does not minimize the, the harsh reality of these trials. It's, it, our passage isn't saying, oh, just be joyful and don't worry about the trials of your life. No, rather, our, our, our passage is very honest with us. It says, these trials grieve us. They're painful. They're disorienting. They're perplexing. They're overwhelming. And, and perhaps we are tempted to think that well, these trials are, my, my trials that I'm experiencing now don't qualify for this. This is talking about the big trials of life. But notice that these trials are described as various. Our passage makes room to account for all types of trials. The big trials, persecution, death, and, and the trials we seem to face every day. Perhaps there are trials at, just at work, trials with relationships, strained relationships, praying for lost loved ones, the trials of seeing sickness and disease and dealing with these trials. Our passage speaks to all of these. So how do we, how do we rejoice in these trials that really often expose our, our weaknesses and sinfulness. Well, first, perhaps a word of comfort is, is necessary. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that we have a high priest in Jesus Christ who is able to sympathize with all of our weaknesses. So when trials test us and press us, know this. You have the compassion of Jesus. He has been tested far beyond you or I could ever think. But here in our passage, we see that one of the reasons we continue in joy in the midst of trials is because they're described by this little phrase that they're, we're experiencing now for a little while. And now this might perplex us because we might be in the midst of a trial that seems to last a lifetime. But in comparison to the eternal salvation that awaits us, these trials really are 
just the blink of an eye. And so, so we do find joy in that reality that this gospel salvation we just laid out still awaits us, and it's eternal. And right now these trials are just for a little while. But also know this, if you are in the midst of trials and pain, if you are suffering, know that your trials are not purposeless. They are not pointless. Here our passage reveals to us two more promises that give us reason to be joyful even in the midst of trials. And those promises are gospel refinement and the promise of gospel reward. So look with me at at verse 7. You have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. These trials, the promise of the gospel is that rather than ruin your faith, these trials will actually refine it, perfect it. I'm thankful for the the illustration of the gold and the refiner's fire here. I don't know if you have ever seen a hunk of raw gold ore. If you didn't know what you were looking for, you would think that you're just looking at a big chunk of gray rock. If you had a keen eye, you might be able to see little flecks or specks, maybe a streak of gold here and there. But for the most part, it looks just like a big chunk of worthless rock. But the refiner sees that rock and knows that there is gold, genuine, valuable gold in, inside. And he plunges it into the refining fire and it melts away all the impurities and all the debris and what you're left with is what was there all along. Genuine gold. This is the same with our faith. One theologian calls trials the crucible of Christian faith. God has gifted us the gift of faith in our hearts, and he, and he sees it, their genuine faith, and he takes that faith amidst all its impurities of our sinful flesh, and he plunges it into the fire of trials to melt away all of the dross, all of the impurity, and what comes out on the other side but what was there all along. Genuine, perfected faith. We see this elsewhere in James 1, 2 through 4. Don't we count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So Christians rejoice in spite of their suffering and trials because we know that God uses them to refine our faith. And this refinement of our faith leads to a second gospel promise we see here, and that is the promise of gospel reward. Verse 7 again, our faith is refined so that it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. 
So we are joyful in trials because we know that when we come out on the other end, faith perfected, there awaits for us reward. Now, as Christians who hold high the glory of God and his sovereignty, we might hesitate for a second at this reality that we too would receive some reward for what he has done for us. But be staggered by this reality, Christian. The God of all glory who has no need of anything will commend you. Well done, good and faithful servant. You will be given an unfading crown of glory to go along with your unfading inheritance. James 1.12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. 2 Corinthians 4.17 captures this very well. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The trials that we face in this life are not pointless. They are working for us a great reward and you will be swept up into the praise and glory and honor of God. And, and when will we receive this reward? At the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom we are waiting and longing to see. Look with me at, at verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You have not seen. You do not now see. Implication, you will see. We've buried the lead a little bit here, haven't we? You see, what's the common denominator of all these great gospel promises? The golden thread running through each of these gospel promises is that they all are fulfilled at the return of Jesus Christ. When will you receive your gospel salvation? When it is revealed at the last time. When will you receive your gospel reward? at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, these gospel promises are not nameless, faceless, abstract promises that we look at as principles just to make ourselves feel encouraged. No, these gospel promises are embodied and come to fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is your promised gospel resurrection hope. You will be raised with him. Jesus is the king of your gospel inheritance. You will dwell with him forever. Jesus is your promised gospel security. By his righteousness, he will keep you. Jesus is your promised gospel reward. You will be caught up into his glory. Jesus is our gospel salvation. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You will see him. This is the promise of Jesus Christ 
that is the fountainhead of all of our joy and all of our praise. Perhaps a a new sermon title is in order, Praise to God and Joy to God's People Through Jesus. So Christian, we began by asking the question, how do we continue in praise and joy here and now in the midst of our exile, in the midst of trials, when we can't see the beauty of God because of life's circumstances? We gaze and consider the gospel promises he lays out before us, and we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, knowing that we will see him face to face. So perhaps a few pastoral charges are in order here. One, let's consider and look at these promises and store them in our heart. A second Uh, exhortation could be this. Remind each other of these promises. Speak them to one another. Encourage one another with the promise that we will see Jesus. And finally, we do what our passage does. We praise and we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you for the gospel promises that you hold out to us. Let it fill us with joy and let our praise ring out. Father, give us hearts that long and seek to see Jesus, that we would eager, eagerly wait for him. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.